0: Right. Well, each week as a church we have teaching from the Bible. That means that each week, uh, together as we come together, we sit under the Bible's ideas, and we allow God to use it to shape us and our lives. Uh, This, the ideas in this book, or I should say, this collection of 66 books, are described as being like a lamp to our feet. Uh, or like milk for our soul, or like a seed that produces life. But it's also described as being like a hammer that smashes, and a sword that pierces, and a fire that consumes. And today uh, is going to feel a little bit more like a hammer that smashes than like a light to our feet. Um, I feel... As we've been going through the Ten Commandments together, I feel as though each week we stand up and we say, we're going to be talking about this commandment. Like Last week's a good example. We're going to talk about honoring your parents. And all of us sat there and went, great, that's for the kids, surely. And by the end of the message, we were like, ah, <laughs> I need that one. And I felt as I've been preparing and thinking about today, it feels like today we're going to be chased, pursued by the word of God. Um, and We're going to allow it to come for us, to change us. Um, that's how Christians get their kicks. Each chase begins with several stages. It starts far off when you notice a pursuer or a beast on the horizon that's going to come for you. It's far enough away that you look at it and you think, it just looks, that looks innocuous and safe and harmless, and I can just study it. And then there's the part of the chase where you realize, I'm actually being chased. I really need to run for my life because I'm in danger. And then there comes the part of the chase where the beast is upon you. Its claws are on us. We feel its breath on our neck and its teeth near us. Very dramatic for a Sunday morning, isn't it? Are you ready? Okay, here we go. Well, around 3,000 years ago, the book of Exodus records for us the time that Moses stood on a mountain uh, and addressed the 12 families or tribes of people that he'd helped bring out of slavery and bring them into freedom. As they gathered together, he delivered what's become known in Western history as the Ten Commandments, or in Jewish history simply as the Ten Words. In as few as 300 words, the Ten Commandments summarizes for us God's wisdom on how human beings can live in the world if they want life to work as well as it can for them. I say as well as it can because we all recognize, as in fact the Bible does, that life doesn't work perfectly for us. It never will. Societies are not perfect, communities are often fractured, families are almost always dysfunctional at some level, and the reason for that is because we as individuals are not whole. We are broken. Hence, we break things. Hence, life is broken. And we, in turn, struggle to get on with one another. Thus, the attempt of the Ten Commandments to course-correct us and set us on a right path again. Now, today we're in Commandment number six, that when you see it, you'll think, this is fairly straightforward. Again, it's just at a distance, it's quite harmless, it doesn't affect me. Four words, one idea, and one seemingly very simple rule. Here it is, we go to the next slide. This is, there's something going on there with the computer. You shall not murder. Murder is the unlawful, premeditated killing of one human being by another. Don't do that. Okay? You got it? Good. Right. Well, let's move on then. Let's get the band back up. Let's sing. Well, I said that today's going to feel like a chase, and this is the part of the chase where we feel safe. There's the commandment. It's a long way off. Perfectly harmless. Not going to affect us. I'm not going to murder anyone. Are you going to murder someone, are you just going to talk to your wife? Yeah. We're not going to murder anyone. That doesn't affect us. We're good people in this room. We live in Seaford, don't you know? Or New Haven. Peace Haven we're less sure of, so maybe they need this message. But well done us. We don't need advice on how to keep this command. Now, what we saw with Andrew's message a few weeks ago on sexuality, however, is that these commands often act as like summary statements that assumes a range of different ideas within them. You shall not commit adultery is the summary of the Bible's teaching on human sex and sexuality. You shall not murder is the icing on the cake of the Bible's teaching on human dignity and personhood. That's the cake. That's the juicy bit. And sometimes, perhaps all the time, when we read the Bible, we need to rediscover that old habit, that really annoying habit that you grew out of as kids. When you read something in the Bible, you need to learn to ask, but why? You shall not murder, but why? Because it's wrong, but why? Because God says it's wrong, but why? Because God cares about us, but why? But why, why on earth would God care about us and why and how we behave? Now before long, if you follow it all the way down from the icing to the ingredients, we see that's what, that what's on work at work here is the tide of human identity that is just, this is just the crest on that particular wave. And so while our pursuer, the commandment, is at a nice, safe distance, let's think about what it means and why. Now, in the first few pages of the Bible, uh, we find these words in Genesis 2. It says, when no, have we got this on the slides, John? It says, when no bush of the field, here we go, when no bush of the land uh, was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had sprung up, Yahweh God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. Now in the creation poem of Genesis 1, everything that gets made, gets made with a word and a command. Let there be. And there was, let there be, and there was, let there be, and there was. But when God makes man, he makes him differently. God takes the stuff of the earth, he forms him in his hand. This image is one of intimate involvement. He forms the dirt and then he breathes into it. What's going on here? Uh, Well, two things quite clearly. On, On the one hand, the man, human beings, are of the earth, he are, he is, we are animal and earthy. Science would agree with that. We're a carbon-based life force sharing the same DNA as bananas and chimps. But then, and this is the second thing that's going on, we have God's breath in us, which means that we're different from the animals. And here philosophy would agree with us. We possess consciousness and free will. We appreciate beauty. We create for the pleasure of creating. We have invented languages. So human beings differ from the rest of creation in that we aren't just of the earth. We have God's breath in us. We aren't just animals, but neither are we angels. We're something in between, we're humans. We differ in the, res- in the respect that we, both of us, male and female together, so there's no inequality or sexism in God, together have been made in the image of God. And so to alter the popular song lyrics, uh, it turns out that you and me, baby, aren't nothing but mammals. So we shouldn't just do life as they do on the Discovery Channel. There's something different about us. And we're made in the image of God. What does that mean? It means not that God essentially looks like us with two arms and two legs. Instead, it means that we are made to represent God in the world. We're like mirrors of God that reflect what He's like. We reflect God's nature to the trees and the seas and the bees and the birds, the birds and the bees. That's how you'd normally say that. We're mirrors of God. Hence the commandment, you shall not murder. If you intentionally smash a mirror of God, You don't just get seven years of bad luck, you insult the Spirit of God. Now in our day, the idea of images is perhaps best understood in terms of thinking about our social medias, because all of us have images of ourselves out there on the internet that we feel best represents us. This one, or this one, you know, we have our, this is my laughing face, (laughs) This is my sultry face. This is my serious contemplative face. And we have different images of ourselves on the internet that we think this is a good image of Jez. This represents me on the internet. We can perhaps imagine then how it might be how we might feel if someone intentionally and maliciously defaced our image on Facebook or Instagram, or even as an act of spite, tried to delete our profile altogether. You shall not murder. Moses says, you shall not murder. Why, we ask? Because people matter to God. People represent God in the world. And so for all the talk out there that the Old Testament is a barbaric and bloody and brutal book, a lot of which is true, the age and society, it was written to are far from civilized, like you and me, there is in that society, nevertheless, Foundational and fundamental teaching going on being sown into the, into the soil of humanity that insists on a person's worth and value. Whoever they are, whatever sex they are, whatever age they are, whatever disability they have or orientation they're of or whatever country they're from, they matter to God. And when we talk about murder as being unlawful killing of another person, we have to ask, By whose law is it considered unlawful? And the answer isn't necessarily the law of our country, but the law of God. And so the chase is on. The beast of this commandment now starts to get closer to home. We should start running. Now our civilized and sophisticated age needs to listen to this teaching. We live in a time when a person's value is being questioned. Uh, influential ethicists, have redefined what a person is to the point that a chimpanzee and a dolphin now has more rights and is considered more of a person than some human beings are. We live at a time when murder and killing are all over our TV screens and in our computer games. It's reckoned that by the age of 18, the average person has witnessed over 200,000 acts of violence and over 16,000 murders just by watching TV or playing computer games. And that does something to how we think about human life. We're living at the tail end of a century that most historians would call the bloodiest century in history. There were over seven recorded genocides and over 180 million people, most of them civilians, 187 million people, mostly civilians, were killed as an act as a result of warfare. 187 million people. Each of them people bearing the image of God, each of them loved by God, all of them dead. Now closer to home and culturally very sensitive is the fact that every year in this country, thousands of men and women faced with an impossible situation, make the agonizing and difficult decision to terminate their pregnancy. Since 1968, there have been over 8.5 million abortions carried out in the UK. That's 8.5 million human beings who never saw the light of day. In 2017, there were 679,106 live births in England and Wales. And there are 194,668 abortions. That means that 22% of all pregnancies, excluding spontaneous miscarriages, end in abortion. It's one in five, over one in five. The most dangerous place to be in England right now is in the womb. Now, I don't raise this glibly or cheaply i'm not trying to score points or to make anyone feel uncomfortable for the sake of a point point. and god knows there is grace and love and compassion from god for anyone who's had to make that impossible decision it is always a courageous act to bring a life into the world always courageous never easy for some especially so And this is hardly a casual topic of conversation, but in case you're wondering, less than 3% of all abortions that took place in 2017 were done to save the life of the mother or were done due to fetal abnormality, less than 3%. And the discussion sometimes centers on when an embryo becomes a fetus or when a fetus becomes a baby, at what stage in its development. The answer, however, sadly, seems to be the dependent, really, on whether or not the child is wanted. Uh, in February 2017, the world celebrated Beyonce Knowles' announcement that she and her husband, Mr. Jay-Z, were expecting twins. Celebrated. And similarly, Fanfare greeted the, uh, the Duchess of Cambridge when she announced in 2017 that... Oh, this one. Sorry, we gone past it. Anyway, uh, when they were expecting their third child, when they announced their pregnancies very early on, they were not embryos or fetuses, but babies, humans, children. Now, there's also efforts being made through the process of screening to dissuade women from giving birth to children with disability, particularly children with Down syndrome. There are countries like Iceland where 100% of women... Who are told that their fetus has the likelihood of having Down syndrome, abort or terminate 100%. This leading uh, this lady, Charlotte Fien, uh, to address who has Down syndrome. She recently testified before the United Nations Council and she pleaded with them, saying this We are still human beings, human begins. We are not monsters. Don't be afraid of us. We are people with different abilities and strengths. Don't feel sorry for me. My life is great. Please do not try to kill us all off. As well as this, there is also growing acceptance for the value and necessity of assisted suicide at the end of a person's life. Again, a culturally very sensitive issues. Our newspapers seem to be decidedly on the side of persuading us that this is something that a developed and modern society like ours ought to make available for its citizens. People who make the decision to end their life are portrayed as heroic and courageous, noble even. The terminally ill and to an increasingly increasing extent the elderly are seen as burdensome, a nuisance even to our society. I spoke to a woman a few years ago who told me that if ever her cancer returned, she would be going to Dignitas almost immediately. She said, Because I want to spare my family, I don't want to put my family through the ordeal of my cancer. Does suffering, human suffering, have any value for the human race at all anymore? Does suffering bring out the best in our humanity? Or is it always an absolute evil? These are not easy decisions to make or questions to ask and often it's easier not to say anything. But nevertheless, it is often thought that since we are a civilized society and an advanced people, we ought to be able to decide for ourselves whose lives matter and whose don't. Shouldn't we? What it means to be advanced and developed. Sadly, it is almost always, almost always the poor and the powerless who come off worst. In any situation like this, where cultural elites make dramatic changes to the way a society functions, it's always the poor and powerless that come off, come off worst. Now, societies have always argued for their rights to end lives, whether it is the life of the young or the old or the infirm. They always have, and they always will. The discussions often centered over the value and worth of a person to a society, their utility, their usefulness. In Rome, ancient Roman society, it was generally understood and it was even coded into their law and legal system that all peoples are not equal. The American Constitution's wrong. It is not self evident that all people have been created equal. That is a Christian idea. In Roman society, slaves were described as being non persons, they were property of their owners, as were most women, property of their husbands. Our roots as a society are not grounded in ancient antiquities like ancient Rome or ancient Greece. as Some people would have us believe they're grounded in the Judeo-Christian ethic that we are human beings made in the image and likeness of God with worth and value simply because of that. Contrast the ideas of ancient Rome with that simple idea then that when God made man, he created him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. Now, it may feel like we've been captured in this chase. The beast might feel like it's upon us. This commandment has borne down on us, but there's still a way to go. It's going to get more uncomfortable still. In his famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus imitates Moses. He gathers 12 people, stands on a mountain, and he gives them commands. For living and he says to them in Matthew 5 he says you have heard it said you have heard that it was said to the people long ago you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment but I tell you what do you mean I tell you you can't change God's words Jesus does this a lot Jesus spoke and behaved in a way as though he thought he was God. Change what God says. Which means either Jesus was delusional, on a level with the man who thinks he's a poached egg, or it means Jesus was evil. He knew he wasn't God, but he tried to convince people he was God. Or it means that Jesus was telling the truth. Those are the three options. He can't just be a good man or a good teacher. He spoke and behaved as though he was God which is it? Was he mad? Was he bad? Or was he God? Anyway, but I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. And anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. I think that's quite a cool-sounding insult, isn't it? Rocker. I'm not suggesting we do it because Jesus says we shouldn't. But nevertheless, Jesus' friend John agrees with Jesus. In fact, he says something similar. In a letter to his church, he says in 1 John 3, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. There's our idea. Now, as ever, Jesus takes a commandment, takes one of the ten, and he drives it home like he did with the one on parents last week. He drives it home. This is about your attitude to your brother or to your sister. Jesus is saying essentially this, the motive that murders a man is the same as the one that tramples him underfoot or belittles him or robs him of his dignity or dehumanizes him or insults him. In Matthew 15, elsewhere, Jesus said, the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart And these defile them, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. The heart. How you speak shows what you feel, and what you feel reflects what you believe. If a human being is a mirror of God, your emotional life is a mirror to your beliefs. Shows what's most important to you, shows what you really believe It's often when people say they believe in something, the truest answer is to say, well, I'll watch how you live and then I'll really see what you believe. And if we're honest, our emotions reveal that we are a lot more self-centered than we'd probably care to admit. When someone makes us angry or when we want to curse, it's usually because they've stopped us getting our own way. Several months ago, something happened at home that is seemingly quite trivial, but it made me furious. One of my children, and I won't say which one so that there's nothing against me in court when he's murdered. One of my children dropped my iPad on the floor and the screen cracked. And I just, I became, Bruce Banner lost his grip to the Hulk and I became so angry. I shouted and I raged and, and I took myself into my office to pray, to call down curses from heaven on my son. And as I sat there, seething, trying to process my anger, trying to justify my anger to God, like, this is legitimate anger, because I'm trying to look after this device. It's, it costs a lot of money. I'm trying to, you know, I want to treat it well. And my son, is, God, save me from my children. My legitimate anger, I was raging before God. And then all of a sudden, this voice in my some part of me, call it my conscience, call it God, this voice said to me, you've never got this angry about child slavery or sex trafficking. And I was like, shh, but my iPad, oh God, it reveals, my anger reveals what's most important to me. Not injustice, not the causes of the poor, the needy, not the people who are crying out to God from prison cells around the world who are victims, not them, but me and my comfort and my iPad. I get angry most, most often when I have to respond to a, a reality that's different from what from the reality I wanted, to happen, and when this happens, we want to call the people that do these things to us, whether it's kids or a work colleague or a friend or a family member. Even last week, talking about our parents, I'm aware a lot of us are sitting there going, "It's hard to honor my parents. They make me so mad." When that happens, it's the temptation for us is that we want to call them unreasonable. We want to call them stupid even, the people that do these things. If someone's done something truly awful to you, we rage against them by, in our minds, putting them in a different category of person altogether. We call them evil. Or we say that they're not all there. And that, That is how the door gets opened to you being allowed to do them harm or even kill them or terminate them or extinguish them. Don't believe me? This is exactly what happened to a civilized people in 1930s Germany. Jewish people started being portrayed in their cartoons as as being villains by the government. Jewish people were villainous and evil people. Once in popular mindset, it was settled that Jewish people were bad, it wasn't too difficult to start to portray them as stupid. They're just dumb. Once that had been settled in popular minds, it wasn't too difficult to conceive of them as animals, rats, bugs that needed to be squashed or done away with. I mean, think about it. How on earth does a, a modern, civilized society who's aware of the commandments, you shall not murder. How on earth does a people like that create Auschwitz? The journey isn't an overnight one. It's one that starts by conceiving those people as villains and bad and then stupid and before long, animals. And if animals, expendable. That's why your anger, it matters so much. Because it it's linked so directly to how you think about the person who's caused you anger. In Nazi Germany, there was a word for it, Untermenschen, a word that meant subhuman. And it was used of Jews, of the disabled, of gay and lesbian people, and of gypsies, humans, people made in the image and likeness of God, people dearly, dearly, dearly loved by our Father, were treated as rats, gassed. They were approached as a problem that needed to be solved. You see, when we lash out verbally at someone, when we rage furiously at another human being, we take something precious and we smash it under our feet. We take someone precious, someone dearly, dearly, dearly loved, and we crush them under the weight of our words, under our attitudes. We allow it to build and to grow perhaps we can begin to understand why it is that the Bible says in Proverbs 4, verse 23, above all else, guard your heart. Guard your heart, the center of your emotional life. Your emotional life is the key to seeing and understanding what your heart believes what your deepest and most dearly held beliefs are. And if we're honest with ourselves, when we get an insight into what we really believe, it's a lot less comfortable than we'd care to admit. Anger isn't bad. It's an emotion given to us by God. We're supposed to feel angry about many things in the world. The point is that anger, like a lot of our emotions, is like paint over wax. Remember that thing you used to do as kids where you'd write a secret code in wax and you'd put paint over it and you'd reveal it? Anger's like that. It's like paint that reveals what's really being loved here, what's really being believed in the way that you behave. And so what can we do about this? What can be done? The beast of God's word, the commandment, is now upon us. What hope is there for any of us? How can we change if that's how we feel? Your emotions, particularly your anger, flares up in response to people's behavior and to situations at a rate of knots. It happens so quickly because of your old brain, your reptilian brain as a psychologist would tell us. It happens so quickly in re- using your flight or fight mechanism. It happens so quickly that in the moment there's almost nothing you can do. When you're full of anger in a situation, you're raging at someone. The only thing you can do in a moment is walk away, count to 10, or hit a pillow, less advisable. What's needed to change your emotions is to change what you believe. That's causing the emotions to flare up when they do, and you change what you believe By allowing God's word to do its work. God's word is like a waterfall over a rock that in an hour you see very little change. But across a lifetime it carves out a valley or creates a cave. The same sea that crushes the stones is also the one that smooths it and is able to turn even sharp pieces of glass into smooth little crystal looking things that as kids we used to love think look at this stone that's smooth used to be sharp like glass and that's what God's word and by his spirit does to your heart by challenging you week in week out about your beliefs and the things that you hold dear certainly that's how I've seen it at play in my own life I think as a Christian I would like to be a lot further down the journey of kind of Christian morality and I'd like to be more like Jesus than I am. I still fly off the handle. iPad's getting broken. But imagine what I was like 15 years ago before I'd even been exposed to that. In fact, I, I, did, um, I did a personality profile back in September, um, a scary one. It was like a, the most scientifically accurate personality profiling available, the internet told me. And um, turns out I'm in the 90th percentile for volatility which explains a lot to me but I wasn't aware of it which means that in a room of 100 people there's only going to be 10 more people more likely to flare up not always with anger with any emotion but to flare up there's only likely 10 more people than in 100 people than me what do I do with that well imagine what I was like 15 years ago before the word of God and the spirit of God started working on me An athlete doesn't feel any faster from one year to the next. But if you look at his times or her times, you'll see they're getting faster. They're getting quicker. It's happening. It's changing. The word of God by the spirit of God changes what we believe. God's word is a beast that devours us in order to save us. In the, way that, in the same way that Aslan devours the dragon that Eustace has become in um, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, devours the dragon that Eustace has become in order to free the boy. So it is that God does that to us. As we allow his truth to wash over us. Truth, like other people, are immensely important. Every human being is immensely important. Whatever their age or stage, whatever their background, we have to resist perhaps the headlines that like to talk about migrants in terms that they're like insects swarming over the border. So to resist those terminologies because they affect us. You need to sit under the truth. All people, wherever they live, are immensely important to God. Truth like you are not the center of the universe. Truth like God is your defender. God is the one who judges, and so on. But what's also needed For God's word to have effect is that you sit under it and you surrender to God you need to admit we need to admit that we're people who miss the target often and that we need his help and that we need his forgiveness and that's exactly what God offers his help and his forgiveness see Jesus didn't come to just twist the knife into our hearts he came to take the knife upon himself jesus announced to the world you're done for things are far worse than you could possibly ever imagine but things are better than you could ever have hoped possible because you're more loved than you know and he says this anyone who looks to me will be healed and restored again jesus doesn't point to god he points to himself revealing again he thinks he's god Jesus has come to help us, to save us. Anyone who looks to Jesus can be healed, can be forgiven. And on the night Jesus was betrayed, he broke bread with his friends and he said to them, this is my body broken for you. And this wine is the blood of a new promise poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. On the night Jesus went to be murdered, he announced that this murder is not going to be in vain. It's going to be for your healing, forgiveness and freedom. And so together we're going to respond to God's word by celebrating what he's done for us, by breaking bread, by reminding ourselves of the fact that he's provided forgiveness for us. And so if you've repented of your sins, if you've put your trust in Jesus, you are welcome to take communion with us. As we do so, we come to acknowledge two things. We acknowledge that we have fallen short And that when God sent his only son, we were part of the human race that murdered him. We acknowledge our part in Jesus' death. But we also acknowledge, secondly, that we are one body of believers all around the planet, made up of all kinds of different people. We break bread together, not on our own. We break bread together as a way of acknowledging that other people matter. The people in this room matter to God. People in the town matter to God. People in our families matter to God. We are a family that shares not just a common humanity, but a common identity in Jesus. And that's why we respond. And if you're someone who's exploring Christianity, considering the claims of Jesus for yourself, as we respond with communion, you're welcome to sit. Acknowledge to God that you also fall fall short. Ask God to come to you by the kindness and mercy of Jesus and start his process of transforming you into the image of Jesus. If you do that and you're willing to do that, you can join us today in taking communion perhaps for the first time. But let's pray and I'll invite the band to come and join us as we respond.